There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 880. A bonus episode this week. Actually, we have a couple weeks in a row where we're going to have some uh, some extra episodes. Uh, let me tell you who's coming up on the old podcast calendar, uh, just in case you might want to know. Uh, so today is Edgar Wright. Next week we got uh, Will Ferrell, Trey Parker. The following week, Andy Samberg. The following week, Tom Holland. So uh, yeah, it's a good uh, good stretch. Good stretch here. It's actually, been a been a pretty good year, as a matter of fact. But let's talk about you, the Nerdist community. And the Nerdist community court board, Katie Rogers writes, Good morning and hello from New Hampshire. Nampshire. I sincerely hope I'm emailing the right address for the Nerdist community court board. No, I'm sorry. It's, it's not the right one. I found out recently that the uh, Monadnock. 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 Kitty Rescue. An adoption center is in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, is uh, losing its lease, and they are trying to raise money for a new home for the center. Uh, it's a no-kill center, and a bunch of my friends uh, who used to go to Franklin Pierce University would volunteer there. I'd love to share the link for people to donate if they can. It is kittyrescueandadoption.org. Also, Dustin underscore RPG on Reddit writes, Hey, everyone. I'm a game RPG designer who just sent my first tabletop RPG to print. It's called Synthesize. It is a mix between cyberpunk and space opera. The tagline goes, When robots are gods, killing humans is fair game. The website with much more info is SynthesizeRPG.com. That's the Nerds Community Court Board for folks like you. This episode of the Nerds Podcast is brought to you by MeUndies. Uh, they're soft AF. I'm I'm actually wearing them now, not that you need to picture or know that, but um, yeah, I used to. There was a very popular chain that was the only place I would buy the boxer briefs from, and uh, I always felt trapped that I had no other <laughs> no other options. And then uh, I started seeing uh, billboards for MeUndies a couple years ago, and uh, invested in some, and it was worth the investment in all the types of ways that I will not describe to you uh, in too much detail, but it's sustainably sourced, made from micromodal, a a fabric that is three times softer than cotton. And if you're used to buying packs of uncomfortable, boring underwear that only come in white, gray, or black, or tan, they will change everything. Uh, The patterns are amazing. They release a new limited edition pattern each month that always sells out. And this month is a rainbow confetti print called Celebrate. So try MeUndies today. Go to the Celebrate pattern before they're all gone at MeUndies.com slash Nerdist and save 20% off your first pair. You will have to feel for yourself why MeUndies has sold over 5 million pairs to date. Uh, I cannot tell you how happy I am they're sponsoring the podcast because I'm going to try to squeeze them for some for some uh, some more pairs of underwear. So that's it. MeUndies.com slash Nerdist. Um, all right. This episode, again, Edgar Wright. Uh, good friend of mine. Night, great guy. Oh, Edgar's the best. He is the best. He is a uh, directed baby driver. It's in theaters Wednesday, June 28th. The movie looks amazing. Um, uh, I will uh, be able to actually see it next week because I actually have a little bit of time off. What am I going to do with two weeks off? I'm going to go nuts. Is probably what I'm going to do. But um, but that's why that's why Lydia is going to keep me uh, sane and and uh, and uh, not freaking out, right? Oh, she's in the other room. Thought she might answer. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> She's not responding because I told her I was recording <laughs> recording the intro. <laughs> so she's just not responding at all. <laughs> I said I love you. <laughs> I 
know she can hear me. <laughs> this is so funny to me. Anyway, <laughs> here's the Nurse Podcast with the amazing, incredible Edgar Wright. Katie, roll the thing. Lydia, I said I love you. <laughs> Sorry, I'll start the podcast in a second. <laughs> <laughs> I said I love you like four times. Well, I, you I am recording. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't want to interrupt. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I thought you were telling your podcasters that you love them. Well, there, there's not just podcasters out there. There's lots of people. Well, who, listeners. I thought yeah, yeah, you were yeah. telling everybody you love them. I didn't realize you were speaking to me. I was talking to you. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. I love you. I love you too. Now entering Nerdist.com. I didn't realize he was 88, though. Because he was just on the podcast a couple years ago, and he was... It just seemed like... I thought he was like 70. Roger, Roger Moore I met once. My, my friend David Williams is very good friends with him. In fact, he read at his funeral. But um, Roger Moore, you could get him to kind of like sort of... Um, even like a couple of months ago, like sort of... You know, I, one of my favorite things... I like wrote some tweet. There was some coffee shop around the corner from my house. Maybe this is a good story for you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to tell it? You want to tell it? Sure, sure let's tell it. Adam Are you recording? Yeah, as we were. Sure, I turn this off. <laughs> this is the, this is the fucked up thing about being friends with someone, but then having them on the podcast is that you start talking about stuff. And you're like, oh wait, that's really good. Can you save that? And you're like, why? Are you? Then, then I feel dirty because I'm like, oh, now I feel like I'm commercializing our regular friend chat. No, but, that's okay. But everything you're saying, but you're you're saying a lot of things that are very relevant to uh, interests of people. Your who, fans want to feel like they're eavesdropping on our conversation. They they are. They, they are genuinely kind of, are. They kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing this in my house. We're not at the studio. It's it's very it's, it's very relaxed. very pleasant. I'm actually so it's nice actually to have a. That's the thing is it so even though it's press in inverted commas. It is just like sort of hanging out for the afternoon. Yeah, nice. it's it's yeah. You'll you'll end up you'll you'll do the hardcore. I mean, unless you you probably have already started doing the hardcore press. I have. I mean, it always feels like it's just starting. Like I just found out that the the day after my Los Angeles premiere, that my pickup in the morning to go to Washington is six forty five a.m. <laughs> and and, the- and I had to say to my I said to my PA like I saw the look on his face. I said I said I said Rich. I said Are you not going to like this sentence? But <laughs> Would you be willing to come over to the house at 6 a.m.? Because I've got to get picked up at 6.45. <laughs> and I know I'm going to forget something because I'm going on the road for two and a half weeks. Because oh. sort of, I'm also I'm a terrible last-minute packer as well. And I take way too much stuff as well. Because you don't know what's going to come. I know what's going to come. And also just, I mean, it's also like, it also seems like, it must look like, it's also just like an entirely sort of like just a suitcase full of, black and navy clothes that are <laughs> essentially interchangeable so you only end up wearing like 10 percent of them and it's like i just i'm sure like sort of uh, anybody looking at my suitcase is like is he insane well you know you're right i think the rule especially unless you're going to be gone for like a month yeah when i look at stuff i always go okay i don't need to bring brown jeans like <laughs> i'm just gonna wear blue or black every it doesn't i don't need I don't need multicolor. Like, I'm not going to mix it up while I'm on the road because I just don't want to expend too much thought on it. What is the percentage of your clothes that have, A, been around the world, but, B, (laughs) never been worn? Oh, I mean, it's an alarming percentage. I I would say say there's a good... I mean, underwear and socks you go through because you have to. Yeah. But, you know, it's probably like 30 or 40% of the things that you bring just don't... Yeah. And I really would love to be one of those dudes who's just like, yeah, I have one backpack. Uh, it's got, you know, I've been able to fit, because I'm so efficient, everything in here that I'm going to need for two weeks. It's also that color like that, that you never wear. And it's that one that, like, sort of, either sort of, like, my sort of female producer or even ex-girlfriends go, they pick out the one color in this otherwise completely black and navy wardrobe and say, this is nice, <laughs> in that tone. <laughs> like, to say, you should wear this and not just wear the same thing. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll bring it on the trip. And then never wear it. You know, I feel bad for clothes that are, like, 
outliers, like fu- like that are, are a little bit bolder because they're just you know when you only have so much room, they're just not going to make the cut because you can't if you if you bring like a crazy sweater or a crazy shirt, you're only going to be able to wear it once. Yes, and when you're on the road, it's like. I'm gonna probably wear the sweatshirt every day, and then I just so I just need to cycle t-shirts, underwear, and socks. That's all. That's all I need to do. The outer shell, though, is ultimately is relatively the same. I feel like I finally became a grown-up when I started doing the. Um, and I'm not proud of it, but the Simon Cowell, Ricky Gervais thing of essentially just wearing the same black t-shirt because <laughs> <laughs> no one can ever. I just thought, oh, I like this t-shirt. I'll get seven of them, and then I never have to think about it ever again. That was and I the... think, oh my god, I'm becoming Simon Cowell. That was the, but that was that was that was the Seth Brundle thing and the fly <laughs> that he said he took from Einstein. Einstein, yeah, yeah. No, no time expended on. I mean, I basically I would do that when I'm on set for sure. Is that literally eating the same thing every day and wearing the same thing. And when I was like shooting in Atlanta on Baby Driver, I was always like massively overdressed because I like to have a jacket that has pockets on it. You know, so I got this big puffer jacket with loads of deep pockets. And, <laughs> but it's also it's that thing where even the pockets themselves become kind of like the void that within them is just like sort of sides and storyboards from the last three weeks. Oh, my and God. And maybe 500 different Sharpies. And, and, then, and then I always lose the Sharpies, and then at some point, you know, the, <laughs> the assistants are saying, Where do, which black hole do you put these black Sharpies in that just disappear? And then a year or two, two, goes by, two years go by, and then it's an archaeological dig. You're like, oh, that watch I thought I lost. <laughs> and those sunglasses... And a hundred dollars, like, because everything just just gets stuff. Well, it's the thing as well, and you know this, having done conventions, because it's always that thing. It feels so, um, it feels so awful to kind of deny these things, or sometimes when people give you stuff, and it's always very nice because fans give you things or say, "Would you read my comic or would you take my book?" And part of you thinks, "Yes, I'd love to," and the other part is saying, "I've got to travel around for this for the next three weeks." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When I would do when I do live shows and people bring things, it it I, I think there's an inclination to, oh well, I listen to the podcast for free, so I want to give you something, yeah. and it's very sweet. And but it it also says to me that people do want to exchange that, like they don't want to just take. Like people yeah. really do want to. Like it's does it's not fair unless I give something back to you. And so I give a lot of sweet, nerdy, crafty stuff, but. I will have to ship an extra box home. And there are some things where it's just like, oh, look, I, I brought you this painting. I'm like, I'm on a plane. What did you think <laughs> I was going to? But it's fine. No, so it's... I end up having to ship stuff home separately. These are high-level problems. They're very high-level problems. But then I – but I because I don't want to – You don't want to say no to anybody. I don't want to say no. And I, don't, and I don't feel good about getting rid of it because I feel like, well, someone spent time on this and they brought it and it was special to them. And, and I, I, they deserve that I should appreciate and have this. Uh, but you know, it's just air, air travel is restrictive. There's only so much stuff you can bring on a plane. Sometimes, though, you get to places. Though the flip side of this is that, and I remember this happened in uh, first time we went to Atlanta doing press for Shaun of the Dead. Uh, I think sort of it was Nick Frost's birthday. Uh, I might be mixing up two tours. This might be hot fuzz. But definitely, I remember over the course of about seventy-two hours, he got given five different birthday cakes. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was like his on his actual birthday, and then the day preceding and the day afterwards. And there's that thing where, so at some point, you just start eating a lot of cake. I mean, one time as well, we told this story before, but the Atlanta story is that somebody a screening, um, and we did a screening in Atlanta, and somebody came up and said, "Present from Georgia," and it was this brown paper bag, and it was full of brownies. And oh, um, no. I know. So here's the thing is that sort of like, and when I've told this story, people say, why would you eat something like that from a fan when you don't really know what's in it? And I was like, well, it was the last day of the press tour and we were flying back to London the next day. And me and Nick had one. Simon Pegg did not. And he was the smartest of the bunch. And they were extremely strong. Um, <laughs> Did you have any in- in- inkling that there was anything? Oh, no, we thought that that was probably the case. Oh, right, right, we, right. we just decided to go, go for it. And then when you take a bite and it tastes like a front lawn, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, this is... Uh... But here's the dumbest part to it, and I don't know why. I mean, I think we were just like, there's that expression, demob happy. Do you know what that means? It's mm-hmm. like a World War II expression about, you know, demobilize. People go kind of nuts when they get out of the army. Okay. You know, so just go on a wild sort of drinking spree and stuff when they're kind of like released from the army. So I think it means de- demobilized, but demob happy is people going, yeah, going it. crazy once they finish something. So it was the end of our long press tour that had been for like a whole month flying around. And we were about to fly back to Heathrow. And Nick Frost, out of the immortal sentence, holding this bag of brownies, he goes, 
it seems such a shame to throw them away. <laughs> so me and Nick decided to have two each, oh, which is really shit. dumb. I don't know what the hell I was thinking because unlike Nick, I'm not like I'm a big lightweight. So then I think I just spent like the 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 entirety of the I felt like I'd already eaten them, but I definitely felt that when I was at the Delta kind of check-in in, like, sort of Atlanta, Georgia, I felt like I was in Midnight Express all of a sudden. Got it. So I felt like they'll know that I've eaten... They can see it in my eyes, <laughs> and they're going to let me on the plane. And I sort of went into sort of, like, cold... What, my face went white. I was, like, sweating. And I just thought, I'm never going to get through customs. And I had that thing where, like, Simon Pegg was sort of... kind of sort of dragging me through each part of the customs because I was, like, looking more and more, like, freaked out. And then I got to the Delta Lounge, and I remember that uh, the two things that was like sort of two different slices of heaven on other sides of the room, and I think I did this for the entirety of our 90 minutes in the lounge, was on one side, there's a plate of cookies, and on the other side was a, one of those electronic massage chairs. And I just sort of slowly went between the two for 90 minutes straight. So you didn't freak out at all? No, I think by then it was like the massage chair. The massage chair eating a cookie is like, oh, this is the best thing. So you were, you were okay. I, I was fine. I, would ne- I was never, a go- I could never handle, I could never handle weed, when, even when I was doing anything. And uh, it, I feel like I would just flip out and go to a hospital. And then they would laugh at me because there wasn't, there wouldn't be anything really wrong. But I would be convinced, like I'm going to die. I'm, my brain is going to leak out of my ear, and my heart's going to explode. I would never be able to. I know. I'm always so sort of. I, 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 I don't know. If I've ever had that, but definitely like sort of a like sort of people who are like big smokers, <laughs> like Doug Benson, or like sort of. I've met through like Quentin Tarantino. I've met some of the the, the Wu Tang Clan and stuff, or even Quentin himself. The people who are big smokers is there. Sometimes just one puff is like a day ruiner for me. <laughs> So Doug Benson goes, do you want some? And I go, yes. <laughs> like, yes, but yes. And there's like one puff and it's like, oh, that's the rest of my day gone. <laughs> Where for Doug, it's just like a guy taking a smoke break at work. Oh, no. Oh, back to work. Yeah, absolutely. I love the, I mean, the way that he operates is amazing. I, don't, I, I couldn't do that. I've never, also, I never, I never drink during a shoot full stop. I have to kind of like stop everything completely because just, I, you know. I've always like done that, so and usually then I just like have a glass of champagne on ramp. But usually it's like not quite as glamorous as it seems because usually you're you're in a parking lot in the middle of nowhere drinking champagne out of a paper cup. I mean, it still tastes good after like three months. Well, that's but... pretty amazing then because World's End was basically a pub crawl movie, <laughs> so you must have been shooting in pubs. We were shooting in pubs, and there's that thing is obviously as you can imagine is like a you're not like drinking, b the actors not drinking real booze, and also. Um, on top of that, just the sort of the stink of those places after a while, you start to really feel for people who are like passed up. Oh, the daytime, yeah, the this, daytime. Just the sort of the, the the smell and the stickiness of the sort of the beer, <laughs> the sun beaming into the windows, just sort of just sort of cooks it in a little bit. Yes, so exactly. There's, there's a real. Oh no, I feel like I've I've done my time. Sort of. I mean, it's funny. I think sort of. Um, I've done between Shaun of the Dead and, and Hot Fuzz and World's End. I've done so much shooting in pubs. It's like I never want to go into one ever again. I, I understand that, but I have to say, and I never miss drinking ever. The only time I ever kind of miss it a little bit is when I go, if I ever go to London, I'm like, fuck, it just looks so charming here. Yeah. That pub's been there for like 300 years. Oh, yeah. Shit. I did actually a couple of months ago. I had my first pint that I'd had in like, I don't know, years and years and years. And it's because my friend was making fun of me because I took my friend to a fancy cocktail place and they were like going, ooh, look at you. <laughs> and I said, well, let's, 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 let's go from like the sort of the Burner's Tavern, which is a super fancy cocktail place, to like the Dog and Duck. And I had my first pint of beer in like a long time. Um, and it was, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, London has some of those like swanky... I went, years ago, I went to one of those swanky underground... Uh, I think I was with I think I was with Zach Galifianakis. He was shooting something there, and I was over there, and I was stayed with him for a handful of days. And he went to this crazy secret. I think it was called the Groucho Club. Oh yeah, that's the the original members club. In fact. And fuck it, I mean it was just like every amazing British character actor in one place. Yeah, just talking to each other like Laugh Olympics or something. It was insane. Yeah, that place, I think when I first moved to London, that was the first 
someone that's working in TV, like doing space and stuff, that going to the Groucho Club is like a big deal because you weren't like a face yet. And then eventually I became a member, you know. But it's also called, you know, it's named after Groucho's quote. What? Oh, Groucho. I would never want to belong to a club that would have me as a member? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but I feel like, I don't know, everyone there is pretty fucking cool. I, I feel like now, if I... You could go and you're probably not allowed to have phones in there, but if you could just film for 10 minutes, it could be like, there's footage from the new Harry Potter movie. <laughs> it's like, there's no, it's just, it's everyone. It's literally everyone. I'm the only British person who's not in Harry Potter. You, you Every really other member of the British Isles is in Harry Potter. In some way, like some background, <laughs> or maybe they were a creature or a friend of Hagrid's, but I, it, I feel like maybe it's not too late for you to get in on this other... Fantastic Beast. Yeah, the Fantastic Beast Oh, there's going to be like universe. 10 of them. I decided, actually, it's something that one of my sort of... And I like the Harry Potter films generally, but they definitely started a trend, which is in so many modern movies. And it's a sort of a new kind of um, cliche that I would call shouting exposition into a wind machine. <laughs> and it's like, something that in, happens in a lot of movies. I've seen it recently in, like... I mean, it happens in most movies, because a lot of movies are explaining the rules of what's happening. So you get it in Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts... Doctor Strange, you know, Wonder Woman. It's just a thing, and I understand it because it's like sometimes it's that thing where they're sort of trying to make... It's usually about making the ending kind of like more... You know, they have to set up what's happening. Sure. You know, sometimes where it's... But it usually becomes that thing of... And I was talking to Kamail about it the other day, um, uh, and Thomas Middleditch, actually. We were talking about it, about the thing of like shouting exposition into a wind machine because it's that thing of... It's pretty much like, hey, we have to get... <laughs> the last thing otherwise it's usually like we have to get the object elder to wand. stop the other object um, the elder ones but it's always a sort of like I mean I guess Lord of the Rings does it a lot as well but that's based on god damn it but shouting no, I'm never not gonna see that I know shouting exposition into a wind machine I don't think I've ever done it in any of my films I don't think so Mike Judge has a good one but it's it, but it involves I guess it involves movies but it involves a lot of like crime procedurals and he calls it, uh, it, it's all the sentences end, should end with, but you know this because you work here. Yes. You know, but you know this already because you work here. So that's where they go, well, you know, here's a bunch of technical jargon and this is the process we have to go through. But you know this because you work here. <laughs> but it's also, I think that Roger Ebert in his book of cliches, film cliches, had a great one, is where like, you know, you have a scene, a crime scene, and they say, and it's like the two detectives talking and they say... Um, and of course, you know, there's some kind of like cliffhanger sort of end to the sentence. And then they continue that conversation back at the station, missing out what was there presumably a 20 minute silent car ride. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Where they didn't talk about it in the meantime. He started the sentence and then the, by then they get the thing and he's finishing the sentence like and then he just paused. Yeah. The, yeah. They just this shut is sort down of like they the had over. to like one of them had a nap. Well, we watch almost exclusively horror movies, which means that we sift through a lot of um, not great ones. You know, it's like you're I think being a horror fan just means like you're willing to sit through a lot of rocks to get to like one diamond. I call it hunting for truffles. Yes, that's exactly right. We're hunting for truffles. And I, I and I'm very understanding and patient with movies because I know it's very hard to make a movie. It's hard to get people to show up at a certain time. It's hard to manage the investors. It's hard to manage the lighting, the soundtrack, everything. It's not easy to do, as I'm sure you know. So I've tried to be very forgiving of movies, but I still feel like there's so many movies. I just feel like, why has nothing happened yet? You know, why does it take 40 minutes before anything that drives the rest of the story? Like, it seems like you could almost kind of Maybe this is not super artistic, but plot out mathematically. Ten minutes in, this crazy thing's going to happen. Twenty minutes in, it's going to refer to that. Then that's going to drive this story. Then another crazy tentpole thing's going to happen. You know, like... I think that... I mean, usually I think the, the answer to that... I mean, that's the sort of the old Joel Silver approach of, like, every 20 minutes has got to be some kind of bang. Mm -hmm. That was the sort of... The, the, his process to it. And if you look at any of those screenwriting books, it's always based around, you know, just incident every, like, 20 minutes. But I think probably with a lot of horror films, the, the simple fact is they can't afford to do all of those things. <laughs> I mean, it's funny you say that about the looking for, like, uh, what did you call it? It's like looking for diamonds, looking for truffles. As I was thinking about that is that I think I grew up in an age, and I know this is the same with a lot of directors that I know. I've talked to, you know, a couple of people, like, sort of Bong Joon-ho, the Korean director, and also, like, Quentin Tarantino about this as well, is a lot of times you'd watch films on TV because they were on. 
and you would actually sort of suffer through a lot of movies that so these days with streaming i think quite rightly sometimes if something's like bad in the first 20 minutes people have switched it off because they don't have looking, to watch it they don't have to watch it back in the day when i was growing up in the uk there were only like four channels so if there was a horror film on 11 30 at night i was watching it and it might be just okay but through that process what ends up happening and i don't think people maybe have the pleasure of that so much anymore because they kind of give up on things more easily is that you might watch a, a, a C-grade film and say, oh, this film's... What's this film? Like? I say, it's okay, but there's this one great bit. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's the thing, is that sort of like these little sort of diamonds that are within films, is there might be an otherwise nondescript movie that has an excellent car chase, or one light foot chase that lasts for like t- t- 10 minutes. God. And so it's always that thing of like, it's just the... You know, I feel like that, that, that has probably been a little bit lost because there's so much choice that people don't want to, like, they don't have the patience to kind of watch a bad film for the five good minutes. Right, right. But, you know, we, and we, we stick it out. It's, it's, something has to be so horrible for us to give up on it. Yeah. Because uh, we just kind of want to take the, take, the, take the ride experience. And we, there was a movie uh, that we watched the other night, and the premise of it was so fucking great. It was such a great premise. It was sort of a zombie movie, and it was something I've never seen in zombie lore before, and I loved the premise, but it just didn't... They just did... It just didn't quite... It was just like, fuck, could... You know, could I raise money to help remake <laughs> this differently? Because the premise was so... The premise was really awesome. And it involved, like, the spreading of the zombie virus. There was, like, a guy who worked in a morgue, and he essentially was a necrophiliac. Oh, there we go. And then he... See, I'm already interested, but even though you tell me it was bad. <laughs> and he has like, sex with a girl at a party, and then she starts getting symptoms. Of, but I just... That type of, like, zombie lore being transmitted by STD mm. was such a great... Like, oh, fuck, that's a great... Usually it's the biting and the scratching and the blood is pouring out. But this was, you know, an exchange of bodily fluids. and uh, and it, But it just didn't quite... It just didn't quite come together. The thing is, I mean, you already said it, is like, you know, when you started making films, you're much, I feel much kinder to kind of all movies because I, 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 I sort of taken to never, I never like talk about movies on like social media unless I love them. Like if there's anything I don't like, I don't mention it at all because I'm, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. And what's funny, I was thinking about this the other day is that, so most of these movies when it's like, it's frustrating, it's, it's usually because any low-budget movie is just held together by tape. They literally, <laughs> what they have is what they shot. And I know this because the first movie I ever made, which is like nine years before Shaun of the Dead, I was 20 years old and I made a Western that was um, with my school friends and college friends. And uh, it's called A Fistful of Fingers. And I made it when I was 20 and it was released in cinemas. Well, it was released in one cinema, so it was released in cinema. <laughs> in a <laughs> cinema. Counts. A cinema. Totally counts. It's funny, actually, I was reminded the other day that it was, in, it was reviewed in Variety, which made it feel like a, sort of a, a thing. It has, this is a film that exists. It's got a Variety review. That makes you an official filmmaker. And not a bad one, either. It was like sort of... It, it, it did say something about back of the coastal plot, is what they said <laughs> in the Variety review. But there was a thing in that movie. So I shot this movie in 21 days. It cost... The shooting budget was 11 grand. So, um, you know, shorter than some... Less than um, some music videos I'd done for indie bands. So the shoot budget was 11 grand. I think later we had to get another 10 grand to finish the movie. But um, shot for 21 days, got back into the edit, and then, anyway, if you know what an, an assemble edit is, an assemble edit is when you put every scene at maximum length, like the longest it could possibly be. That's the assemble edit. So, for example, as a comparison, Hot Fuzz, the assemble edit must have been like nearly three hours long. And then you cut it down, you know, to like an, like, it's running time. Like a Michelangelo, you're just sort of finding the sculpture yeah. inside. Well, it's also like, it's not necessarily like the, the, with all the deleted scenes, it's even beyond that. It's like every shot of a car driving up as long as it could possibly be, every shot of somebody walking up to a door as long as it could possibly be, just everything at its absolute length. So Fistful of Fingers, the assemble edit duration was 72 minutes long <laughs> at its longest. And then I realized I sort of had a problem is that, oh, there's not enough material. And also on top of that, I wasn't entirely happy with everything that I had shot. 
So if it was up to me, I sort of said to the producer, I said, maybe we should just do an hour-long movie. And he said, that's not a feature. He goes, that's somewhere between like a, a short and a feature. He said, it has to be over 75 minutes to be a feature. So then I, and then I was, I was writing some extra scenes to shoot them. And so I did a thing that like, uh, you're never, never supposed to do. And my producer was so mad at me is I called our one investor. who was the, the, the owner of the local paper in my hometown in Somerset, which is the same place where hot fuzz is shot wells in Somerset, a nice rural area. He had some money to lose on a tax dodge, and he gave us the 11 grand to make the movie. Um, he literally got an inheritance, and I think it was something he could write off as a tax loss. They were going to take it. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, and he'd seen some amateur films that I'd done, so he gave us the money. So I called him up, and I told him that I was unhappy with the movie. And he was, of course, he was alarmed. And when my producer found out that um, I had called the investor and said I was unhappy with the movie, he was so furious with me, and quite rightly. So then what happened? Then it backfired on me, because then the investor drove up to London we'd moved to London to edit it first time I moved to London and uh, he watched the movie and you know so I uh, but the idea was I was going to get him to watch the movie and he was going to give me some extra money to get, shoot some more scenes and he watched the movie and he goes I think it's great <laughs> <laughs> so I was like ah god damn it it completely backfired so then here's, this is what I did to take a 72 minute film and somehow pad it out to 78 minutes Number one, really long title sequence. Of course. Actually, one of the best bits of the movie. My brother did the animation. It's really good, the title sequence. Then the end credit sequence, the roller. By this point, people are leaving. It's like, oh, this is, is going to be like eight minutes long. Like this roller, just with loads of dumb gags in it. Like, and then the best thing about it is in the middle of the film, there was one scene where the, the heroes are it's like a campfire scene. And at the end of the scene, the, the hero just blows the campfire out with one blow and it goes black. And I thought, we could put a scene in the dark in here. So we put in, like, Black Leader for, like, another two minutes. And then I, got, I wrote an extra scene where the, the heroes are just talking in the dark. And it was just put in there to try and pad out the running time. That's incredible. So that's, it sort of became... And then I remember one of the reviews, I think it was in The Guardian, said, it's 78 minutes, it outstays its welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking so snarky. God damn it. So snarky. But but that that obviously, like, that seems like part of your job as a director is to have to run this steeplechase and figure out how to problem solve and how to make things work. But I think... But those mistakes are gifts, like those, yeah. because that allows you to, like, you might get something that you never would have thought of before if it was, you know, if it was like, oh, 72 minutes is fine. Well, it's funny, I, people always say that I've got lots of, there's lots of camera setups in my movie and there's always lots of shots. And I always think I'm overcompensating for not having enough on Fist of the Fingers for the rest of my career. <laughs> It's like, I'll never, I'll never be in that. I'll never have that problem ever again. Burned into your psyche. It's like so. Make sure you. The, the thing is, you got to have more. You can't really pace the movie. I think that's the problem with a lot of low budget movies is that if you don't have the footage, you cannot change the pace of it. Unless you just totally adopt like a French New Wave style of jump cutting, you sort of no way of pacing up the movie if you don't have anything to go to. So a lot of times when you kind of think something's like Dragon, it's because they have nothing else to cut. <laughs> That's it. They're pulling out That's everything. They've the got pantry. everything they got. They say, oh, we did one take of this scene and we did it in a one and that's it. Uh, hor- horror to me is so much like, uh, it's like studying insects in the sense that they evolve so quickly. It's just because their lifespans are so short and they turn over and they're, you know, they have so many different, they can exist everywhere. And so horror definitely feels like that to me because on the one hand, you know, I, the commercialization of it kind of sucks because, you know, there are companies who just go, well, we'll just make 20 this year and one of them will hit. And so it just sort of floods the market, you know, because they're just looking for that one that's like, oh, $100 million, $200 million, great, you know. Uh, but um, it, But the other side of that is that I think there's so much creative potential in trying to figure out how to tell us that type of a story. Yeah. Um, but... You know, again, I, I haven't made a movie, so I am one of these people. The internet is people on the internet are just so dismissive of things, like ah, like you make a movie, it's not easy. Come on, you know. So I, I get extra forgiving. I really do. I, I have a theory. Sometimes when you watch our sort of horror films, sometimes in a movie, if you see a sort of an otherwise like nondescript, like sort of like a, a film that's like mediocre in its direction, but there's like one amazing shot in it. 
I have this theory that the one amazing shot was either done on the first or the last day of the shoot. And it's usually like, there's a movie called Deathline that I really like. This, it's actually, re- I really like, love it. It's great. And there's lots of memorable things about it. It's one about a cannibal on the London underground. And he's been, he's, the, he's a descendant of like um, the tunnelers of the London underground. And there was a collapse and all these people had sort of been trapped there. And then he's the descendant of... Um, of one of the tunnelers, and so he's a cannibal man on Russell Square tube station, and uh, it's got Donald Pleasance and Christopher Lee in it, and uh, the guy playing the monster is fantastic, and he he only has one line in the whole film. He says, "Mind the doors," <laughs> and he says that in every different type of emotion he can. He says, "Angry." There's one amazing scene where he captures the sort of heroine of the movie, but he's trying to plead to her, and he does a whole monologue where he's going, "Mind the doors." Mind the doors. So he's a Hodor, basically. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so the thing with that movie is that, like, it has, like, moments of, like, I just, there's this one amazing shot in the middle of it, and it's not really reflected in the visual style of the rest of it. And I just get the feeling that the director did that on the first day, and then some producer came in and said, fuck all that shit. <laughs> fuck all the arty shit. Just, like, just shoot, shoot the scenes. And then later, and it is a good movie. It's got some really sort of, like, sort of interesting things about it. But in the final like, half an hour of the movie, it has that thing that really feels like they were didn't have enough footage because you watch like police officers walking down tunnels and you will watch them walk down the whole tunnel you know <laughs> so it, i mean it's atmospheric but it's it's funny to me when you look at it now you're thinking did they just not edit it fast enough because that wasn't the vogue or they just were padding out the running time could have been both because some yeah. of those you know <clears throat> Um, when we watched Westworld, Lydia had never seen the original Westworld, so I showed her Westworld, the movie Westworld. Which is great. It is great, but it definitely, like, those movies just took their time. People's attention spans were longer. You know, you could have long scenes where no one says anything, and it just, I think like, when they were editing them by hand as well, it's a different thing. I think sort of things definitely once digital editing came in, like, the sort of pace of films kind of ramps up so oh, extraordinarily. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's actually the physical act of, like, cutting. is Having like to people... put on the gloves and, like... Yeah, and also there's this sort of, like, maybe... I don't know. I mean, I know what you mean. It's like you do feel that sometimes, like, like um, you know, and even some directors have gone back and tightened things up. Like, I think um, Ridley Scott did that with Alien and, like, you know, added two extra scenes and tightened up the rest and it's still, like, shorter than the 1979 version. Yeah, which always, you know, listen, I guess that's his I'm issue. not entirely sure about some of those things. That one's fine. But I don't, I don't like the Exorcist special edition. Oh, no, 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 no. The Exorcist was great the way it was. You know, even as creepy as the spider crawl down the stair. I remember that was the big selling point. The, sh- the spider crawl. They can now, they can do the spider crawl. And I was like, you didn't need the spider crawl. Like, it's- But I, I think those things as well, they're things that have like passed into, before that was shown, it's passed into legend. So it's the thing where they say, we couldn't include the spider crawl sequence because it was too scary. And it's the th- what they don't want to say is, we didn't include the spider crawl sequence because it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't but, look good. Well, it's okay. It's interesting. And it's interesting to watch the deleted scene. But with that movie, particularly with The Exorcist, and I love it, and I think William Freakin's an amazing director. The thing with the spider crawl sequence is that it breaks the premise of the movie. What's great about The Exorcist in its original form is that you go to her room to die. Mm-hmm. She never comes out to get you. Right. It's so powerful, the idea of walking down that hallway to that closed door and going in to see Reagan. You know, so that's what everybody does in the movie. They go in to see her and they come a cropper because of it. But the idea of her running out and biting somebody on the ankle is like... <laughs> But also, William Freakin, I, mean, I love him dearly, and he's a, I know him reasonably well. He's amazing. He does this amazing thing in all of the press where, you know the thing uh, in The Exorcist where they have the subliminal flashes of that white face? Yeah. Back in the day. Now, what that is in reality is Dick Smith's makeup tests. They were doing makeup tests on a different actress that wasn't Linda Blair. It's just looking at ideas of what they could do in the sequences. So that's what that white face is. is some other actress doing a makeup test. Uh, for the record, I'm doing with my hand He's subliminal... Doing like an open close Subliminal flash editing. Thing. So you're, <laughs> Which you're, is for Chris's, Chris's benefit and nobody else's. You probably feel like you're being subliminally suggested to, but don't know why. <laughs> because this, the hand is, is... I'm doing it right now. The hand We're is both doing closing. it now. Yeah, so you're you just imagine us... Too. There it is. Over the miming close. subliminal edits. <laughs> 
so that was what it is. It's it spliced into the movie is the makeup tests from Dick Smith, the amazing makeup artist. But what they said at the time, or what William Friedkin said at the time, they said, we sent the film to the laboratory and it came back like that. Oh, shit. That was part of the press for that movie. It's like, oh, those subliminal images, it just came back from the lab like that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? I mean, that's one of the myths of that movie. It was, like, it was all those myths of things, that, you know, that, about that movie that it's actually, you know, people much more God-fearing in 1973, they believe that stuff in terms of, like, the devil has actually infested this movie. Oh, so he let that... I see. So I, I was thinking of it like, oh, they accidentally cut this footage together. But, oh, no, he's saying he it just came back on from Kodak like that. Oh, that's hilarious. So that... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that period of time, people were super obsessed with, like, devil worship and, like, you know, the families were, don't let your kids play their records backwards. They'll yes. get messages from the devil. And so people are seeing all sorts of stuff that's not there. And, you know, and, and so art absolutely... Ha- I'm sure had a field day exploiting that that fear. That was the zeitgeist fear of I the seventies. I would rather have the myth than the sort of the actual facts. I want to. I want to believe that there's a ghost in Three Men and a Baby. I don't need. <laughs> I don't need actually. I don't need it to be debunked. Uh, I would rather imagine that there were subliminal images that sort of this film is so devilish that the devil himself was in the lab. Did you throw? <laughs> you must have. Th- with your attention to detail, you must have thrown something in the background of something. Did you ever throw anything in the background of Sean? Or was there anything in the background that you're like, oh, no one's picked up on that yet, but there's something hidden? Mm, that's a good question, actually. I feel like with the, with the Cornetto films, that every single thing about them has been, you know, kind of picked apart. Like, um, uh, I mean, there's little things, and Baby Driver's not out yet, and there's no DVD for it, so there's tiny little things in that which I won't divulge, so they sort of give away too much. But I, I like doing that thing, because you always get to the thing where... You know, it usually comes about because, like, with the art department or costume, they say, oh, is there a name for this character? What name should be on this sure. name tag? Or what should be the name of this store? Or, like, what should his prison number be? And, you know, oh, let me, let me come up with something. So, actually, like, sort of, um, you know, things like that where you kind of, like, have a, a, a chance to put in little Easter eggs. So you can say, like, oh, it's the license plate from the prisoner's exactly. car. And then you yeah. can throw those little things in there. So I think sometimes there are, like, num- there's some numbers that are hidden in Baby Driver. And uh, I won't say what it is, but it's the release date of another movie. I just thought that would be a oh, funny Oh, that's thing. really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. But I, I don't think... I knew you, I mean, I, I knew some of the core group of people that you originally worked with because of Space and obviously because of people who you still work with. But I also found out, like, you worked with, like, Alexei Sale yeah. and, like, these legendary British comedy, gargantuan British comedy people. Yeah, I had a period, it was in between, um, so I after I did the, the No Budget Western, I... Did a two shows on, on cable TV in the UK. There's what is sort of the UK equivalent of Comedy Central called the Paramount Comedy Channel. And um, I, Matt Lucas and David Walliams, who are the guys from Little Britain, yeah, yeah. they saw my movie at the Prince Charles in this, in this one cinema. And they, um, <laughs> and they asked me to do their first ever sketch show. This is like eight years before Little Britain. And then the next show that I did on the same channel, like immediately afterwards, starred Simon Pegg. And that was a show called Asylum. It had Simon Pegg, Julian Barrett from The Mighty Boosh, Bill Bailey, who's like a massive, oh, yeah. amazing stand-up in the UK. Um, and then, but then after that, then I was poached to the BBC and I did a, a bunch of like BBC shows. At this point, I was like 22. God damn it. And, um, you know, I think the thing is, and it's funny, somebody said this the other day about baby driver and i was thinking well this is subconscious if there's anything in this at all some journalist said was the fact that you were working in the bbc at the age of 21 or 22 and it influenced on the movie because your movie is about a young sort of um a young professional working within like a, a more established organization i was like oh i mean <laughs> not consciously but maybe i guess going I mean, deep i mean the thing is is that when i was working there i I, I'd say some people, I got on well with most people. I think some older crew members, as you might imagine, just took an instant dislike to like a 22-year-old <laughs> director. And the fact that I was nobody's son, the fact that there was no nepotism involved, I wasn't anybody's son. I had no connections within the industry. I just got there on my own, like, sort of um, talent, I guess. 
is um, they, that used to drive me more mad. I think they would have preferred the nepotism, to be honest. Really? I don't know. I it just seems think like they, they sort want of like, the opposite of you. Like, oh, this kid, he's guy pulled, pulled up his bootstraps and made I a I don't thing. know. I mean, it would be... Th- I mean, it was fine. Like, sort of... I mean, I did, like, about three... Uh, three or four shows, I did an entire series of Alexi Sale, uh, his, his sketch show. Um, Alexi Sale, I think most people over here would know from The Young Ones. Mm-hmm. And then also... Um, I did a, a whole series with Bill Bailey at BBC Scotland, which also had Simon Pegg in it. And then the other two things I did, and this was kind of my last thing I did before going off to do Spaced, which kind of felt like that was the right thing to do because it's like, oh, this is a show about my age group. So it's like I'm 24 directing Space, a show about people in their mid-20s. Mm-hmm. So that felt like perfect. But prior to that, the other thing that I did which some uh, like um, listeners over here will know and some won't, but like it's weirdly one of the most highest rated things I've ever worked on. But I did the French and Saunders Christmas special. Oh, my God. In 1998. I was telling a director about this the other day. Uh, this is going to be a terrible name drop, but it's just funny because it's funny that he would be impressed by this. So are you ready for this name drop? Please, please, please. I was talking to Chris Nolan the other whoa, day. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I call him Chris. Not even Christopher. I call him Chris. But it was amazing is that came up and he said, and this is it's just funny to me that the director of like Inception and The Dark Knight would go, wait, you directed the French and Saunders Christmas special? How? Why? What? <laughs> so I just thought, the fact that, I mean, it's, I mean, that's the one thing you should know about him. And this is, he is a secret comedy nerd, which is, um, which doesn't always come across in the movies. But he, um, so I did this French and Saunders Christmas special. It was a spoof of Titanic and it had Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French, but also Joanna Lumley. Helen Mirren, Adrian Edmondson from The Young oh, Ones. Oh, wow. So, and I was, I was 24 shooting that show, working with these very established comedy legends. And it was both great, but also sort of daunting and sort of frustrating at the same time. I mean, and, how do you get them to... I mean, when you're that I mean, age, they, are, they asked me to do it. It wasn't like... So, okay, so they already... You didn't have to... I wasn't you pitching like, Would you? Can we please do this? And they're like, who do you think you are? It wasn't anything like that. There was a thing where I didn't want to do the studio part of it because they do half of it on location and the other half in the studio. And the, uh, TV directing is a completely different skill and an amazing skill to have, which I do not have. <laughs> and I've, I've always been in awe of people who do live studio direction because it's, you know, it's quite a, a, you know, it's a very precise skill. And I'm just, it's just not for me. And I did it once, and I didn't really want to do it again. So when it came up with French and Saunders, I said, oh, I don't really want to do the, t- the live TV bit, because I just do the sketches. And they said, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. You know, we'll get you a vision mix, so you'll be fine. And then when it came to it, I was trying to finish all the Titanic stuff. And um, the Titanic thing was quite a bear. And so I said to the producer, I said, why don't you get a TV director to do the studio date, and I'll just finish these film clips. And then this very quickly, within about, like, three hours had got around the BBC that I was walking off French and Saunders. Oh. My uh, friend, a producer friend of mine called me and says, I, are you quitting French and Saunders? I said, no, I'm working on it right now. But the story very quickly became that I had walked <laughs> off. Um, and, I didn't do, and I didn't do the kind of studio bit, but I carried on working on it. And it was funny, I think sort of, I've seen Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders a lot since. And they're both very lovely. And, uh, but they, you know, Jennifer Saunders, this is years later after Sean and Deb, she goes, we dine out on the fact you quit on us. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I didn't quit. I was still working there. Like, you know, and also, I mean, I got to say as well, like, so I'll say it's like sort of three of those people, like I had like teen crushes on, like Helen Mirren, Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders. I always like, I had a crush on Jennifer Saunders. So it's a weird thing being 24 and working with this kind of like comedy legend who also like you have a crush on. And it's like just, um, and she's amazing because she's, it's a funny thing, like, I was 24, I remember, uh, like, uh, suggesting a joke, you know, and also I'm at that age, it's not like space where I go in and I'm with Simon and Jess and now I'm one of the, you know, creative voices on the show and I can suggest anything or I can pitch in ideas for stories and stuff, but on French and Saunders it's like, I am this 24-year-old in the room and, like, I remember I piped up with my one joke and I said, what about... This is dumb, but like, so Joe and Alumley is introducing the Titanic making of at the start of it. And at the time, there was this famous rugby player called Jonah Lomu, who was like a, uh, must have been a New Zealand rugby player. And I just said, I said, what if you, on the first year of Joe and Alumley, the Aston at the bottom said Jonah Lomu? 
And Jennifer Saunders goes, ha, yeah, that's funny. Like that. And I sort of, and then it was just like left like that. So then cut to, this is after I've apparently walked off the show. Like it's, it, the show is going up the day after Christmas. It's like the 23rd of December and I'm in the edit finishing my bits, the Titanic bits. And I thought, you know, I better just check with Jennifer about that gag one more time. And then it's a big deal about calling Jennifer Saunders on the 23rd of December. She's already in her, she's already broken for Christmas and she's with the family. And I said, I just want to call, and they said, only call Jennifer if it's an emergency about something. So I remember calling her and it was like the day before Christmas Eve. And I said, hey, Jennifer, I'm just in the edit. I just wanted to check um, if you still were cool with that Jonah Lomu, Joanna Lumley joke. And she just went, oh, no, darling. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, have a happy Christmas. Uh, See you soon. Bye. Are you still there? Are you still there? No, it was just like sort of just like so embarrassed. So embarrassed that like sort of I I mean, I should have I should have felt the room the first time. (laughs) What do you think would happen if you had left it in? She would have been furious with me. Oh, but you said I did say. I mean, I'm, I should have. I should have read the room in the first place. I think she was just being nice. Well, that's time. how you learn. But I think that's what's so great about. That's what I think is so great about working in uh, in the UK is that I feel like you'll be you are able to bounce to so many different things so quickly, and it really is just about you know just the craft of it. Like, okay, now you're working on this, and now you're going to produce this, and now you're going to direct this, and now you're going to go do this. The process for making television in the States is so uh, shitty and long and legal. And, you know, it's like it just doesn't, nothing happens very quickly at all. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the only thing with British TV that's a big difference with, to American TV is there just isn't the, the money in it. And so people kind of get burnt out pretty quickly. I think that's why there are only like two series of things. <laughs> it's because, you know, uh, so it's happened with so many shows like, 40 Towers is the first one that sort of did it. It's like 12 episodes and out. The Young Ones, 12 episodes and out. The Office, like 14 episodes and done. Like, Space is like two series only. And part of that, I think, is just that, you know, if it's just four of you working on it, like, seven half hours is like, is a whole year. Like, yeah. for like sort of two writers and one director and one producer. So. And it's funny, I was just mentioned one other story just made me think of was Alexi Sale. This is just a jump back because it always makes me laugh. And I don't think I've necessarily taken his advice. Alexi Sale was great and I really liked working with him. But I remember once I was directing and, you know, I, and, uh, I can't remember. What, he just said something. He was sitting in his chair and he was looking at me and he said, Edgar, we have to get you some adult clothes. <laughs> 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 and, and it was that thing where, as you might imagine, like, uh, you know, I'm 43 now, but I think so still people think I'm younger than I am. But back then, I think people, I think I was like mistaken for the PA or the runner for like 15 years. Even on Shaun of the Dead, I was mistaken for being a runner. I've seen pictures of you when you were younger and without the beard. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why the, I grew the beard. The scruff. I grew the beard for the sole reason of getting slightly more respect from the crew. <laughs> I swear to God. Because, you know, when it's like... I remember the, the best thing ever uh, with, with that... Um, on Shaun of the Dead, I was, um, it was the scene outside the pub. There was one of the zombie extras. He was actually a guy... He's a guy in the movie. You'd recognize him. He's like one of the older guys. He's got really sort of sallow cheekbones. And uh, he's an older guy. He's actually one of the uh, monsters in the cantina in Star Wars. He's that guy with the oh. devil horns. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember his name. I want to say his name is Saul. Um, anyway, he was a zombie. He wasn't one of like our gang. We had lots of friends playing zombies on that, but he was definitely one of those people who's like a special hire because he's got this amazing face and he's always in monster movies and stuff and he's just got this incredible face. Anyway, and he must have been in his like late 60s. He walked onto set and he saw me standing there and he was like, we, I was looking at the whole scene outside the Winchester of all the zombies and this guy came up to me and he whispered and came up to me, thought I was a PA and said, straight to video for this one. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't really know how to respond other than like, I mean, other directors, if you were Michael Bay, you'd be like, you're fired, get out. But I just went, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and just, I couldn't afford, I mean, I couldn't afford to lose him. He was too good a zombie. And then what, <laughs> which is a very hard thing to find, people who can be convincing zombies. It's yes, not easy no, it's not easy at all. And so did he, at any point, 
Did you have the moment where he realized, like, oh, that was the... I don't think he ever had that moment. He probably just still doesn't realize now, He doesn't, doesn't realize... It's funny we say about good zombies, because we, we actually... The only way... And I keep thanking them for the rest of my career. The only way that we got away with Shaun the Dead is because a large portion of the zombies were, like, fans of Spaced, who we paid one pound for their troubles. It was literally like, do you want to be in a movie? Do you want to be a zombie? We can only pay you a pound, but you'll be fed... And you'll be like, you know, um, looked after. Um, that said, is that sometimes when you get other people, like, there's always a thing with extras. It's always amazing when you get to the edit and there's that zombie who like ruins a take because you know you'll be doing a big crowd scene and you've maybe got two cameras on. It's like, oh, you know, there's a that scene outside the Winchester, in fact, where they where the rest of the gang are like impersonating zombies and walking towards the pub. And you get another camera and say, hey, get in with a long lens and get some other zombies so we can cut to things. And then you, like, you see in the footage afterwards, there's one guy who, like, in the middle of a take, sort of brushes his hair back. <laughs> and it's like, zombies don't brush their hair? What are you doing? <laughs> and, like, there was another guy, I feel bad saying his name, actually, so maybe I'll make up a different name because you all know. But there was one guy who every single day would say to me, hey, if you ever want to give me extra stuff, um, if you ever want to give me extra stuff, uh, you know, um, I, I was in Braveheart and I got given lots of extra stuff and I can, you know, I know something is like, if you want to give me anything to say, and it's like, well, zombies don't have lines, but... <laughs> and he goes, if anything you want me to do, I'm happy to do any stunts and stuff. And so... It was Mel Gibson? Uh, it wasn't Mel Gibson. Oh, okay. Okay, he was in Braveheart. I'll say his name. His name is Dean. But uh, Dean, if you're listening, I, uh, I, I, would, I appreciate it. But then when I got into the edit, like, Dean was... I think maybe having watched 28 Days Later was in just in a different zombie mode from everybody else. So you've got all these slow zombies and then right in the middle of a wide shot it's somebody going, (laughs) waving his hands in the air. And it was the thing is like once you saw him, you could never not see him. So because I knew his name, I'd be in the edit go, Dean, why? Why are you in this wide shot? I can't look at it. Once you've seen the bad extra... Or the overacting extra. I think that's the thing. So to get Dean credit, I think he thought he was in a different zombie movie. He was just like, like wildly overacting and being really, really big. But once I'd seen him in that wide shot, I just couldn't see anything else. Oh, no. So I'd have to cut around that a lot of the times. But usually that's like... You sometimes see like with... Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I actually, after that thing, my producer, Naira Park, is, is really good at being eagle-eyed to look out for like bad extra work. Because I remember that after that incident, I was like, after I said, I need a bigger monitor. To because see when everything. you're when you're there on there, you look at a tiny monitor. It isn't until you see it on thirty five that you really can see what all the hundred Xers are doing. You know. All right. So we have. I just got the note from Katie that you have to go to a press thing in a couple in like five or six minutes. So as we're winding this down, the Gremlins two story. <laughs> Then the thing... Some kind of promotion for my new movie. Then a promotion for Baby Driver. <laughs> then a, well, we tagged that to the top. We put that at the top anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so that, and then I think you were going to tell an Adam West or Roger Moore thing? Oh, uh, well, we were just talking before we started about how... Oh, yeah, how sort of strange it was that Adam West and Roger Moore died within two weeks of each other. Because both of them are sort of, I think, their sense of humor and their raised eyebrow had a big effect on me when I was a kid. They both got very similar, like, senses of humor in terms of, like... I mean, I know it's kind of cool to kind of, like, um, play down the Roger Moore, like, um, era of Bond because the current incarnation is much grittier and realistic. Yeah, Roger Moore just wasn't ripped. Yeah, but also just the the humor of it. But I gotta say, like, especially Live and Let Die and The Spy Who Loved Me are, like, two of my favorite Bond films. But um, I was going to say, the thing about Roger Moore is what's amazing. I only met him once, but he would always be very active on Twitter. And if you gave him a feed line, a feed line he would pick up on it. So when I was editing Baby Driver, there was this coffee shop around the corner from me that every day would change. You know, they, I don't know whether they get them from a book. You know, like coffee shops have their platitude for the day. Right, of course. And they're like, and it, literally the chalkboard would change every day. And one time it said, it, it was raining and the chalkboard said, why don't we get you out of those wet clothes and into a dry cappuccino? And I looked at this thing and went, oh boy. <laughs> like, and I took a photo of it and I said, I don't think even Sir Roger Moore could pull this one off, atting him. And he replied almost immediately, I bloody could. <laughs> and I just thought, I love the fact that Roger Moore has the time to reply to my silly tweets. So, and then Twitter, that he's using it I know. to reach out to people. It okay. was the greatest. So there's that. And then uh, when I showed you downstairs in the house, I showed you some gremlins 
that Lydia had bought, and you go and you recognize. You go, that was Gremlin. That one's from Gremlins too. And I said, yes, it is. But it was not the brain gremlin. And then you started to tell a story. And I go, save it. Save it for the podcast. Oh, yes. So when that uh, Key and Peele sketch came out about Gremlins 2. Yes, because we just talked about that with Andy Samberg. So this will all connect. Um, So, yeah. So basically, um, I sent that to Joe Dante, the director of Gremlins. And I said, have you seen this? And he had seen it. And, I, and he said, that isn't a million miles away from the truth. And I was like, really? And apparently what happened on Gremlins 2 is that Chris Wallace had done Gremlins 1. He's the guy who did the animatronics for The Fly. Mm-hmm. And then he was directing by the time... I think he directed The Fly 2, in fact. He was directing by the time Gremlins 2 came out. So he was out. So they got Rick Baker, who's like sort of like a veteran like sort of special effects whiz to do Gremlins 2 but Rick Baker said he wouldn't do Gremlins 2 unless they designed some new Gremlins (laughs) so the new Gremlins were an attempt to kind of like um, keep Rick Baker interested and let him his creative spirit flow free that's so interesting that that, that's that's because he said he just didn't he didn't want to he didn't want to do it if they were just going to do the same designs from the first one that is the tail wagging the dog where they go well we want this guy I guess we have to come up with the spider gremlin and the brain gremlin and the electricity gremlin on hold that's the best one that was a I mean that's an amazing bit i think that is a fucking great bit i feel like there should have been a whole that should have been an animated show like those all those crazy gremlins with weird powers yeah i i'm a big fan of electricity gremlin i also like um bat gremlin that eventually becomes a gargoyle the gargoyle on the thing some good gags in that movie some great great gags in that movie so uh let's just really quickly uh because baby driver the premiere is tonight it is uh, but when is it coming and out? And it's 6.45 pickup tomorrow. Oh, That's the best bit. That is kind of a, <laughs> hey guys, you know I have a premiere, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's great that I'm going to do more stuff for this, but, you know, a 10 a.m. flight, maybe? I know. Um, yeah, the premiere's tonight, and it comes out in two weeks. And uh, I, I, I had to sort of pinch myself that it's like, um, you know that kind of idea that you've always been talking about? I have to remind myself that that, uh, the, I'm no longer the boy who cried wolf about Baby Driver actually is coming out in theaters. It's like an idea that I've had for over 20 years. It's crazy. And now what? Now what are you going to do now that it's done? I mean, that's, that, is a, that is a thing. It's like sort of, I feel like sort of, you know, it's a funny thing when people say, oh, this is really a passion project for me. Um, and usually it's about some kind of like sort of really heavyweight subject matter. This is a passion project for me, but my passion, you know, is actually um, car chases <laughs> and, <laughs> and shootouts and, 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 and music blasting very loud. So it is a passion project for me. But I, I literally had the idea 22 years ago when I was, uh, I was editing Fistful of Fingers. I was already living in London. I was completely and utterly broke and like signing on. And uh, I had an audio cassette of the John Spencer Blues Explosion, and I would listen to that song, Bell Bottoms, again and again and again. And I would start to visualize this car chase. And this is before... And I said this to a journalist the other day, and I said, so it takes 22 years to make a movie? I said, let's just give it some context. <laughs> I am not in the position of, A, having a phone, right. and B, calling Hollywood in, when I'm 21 years old saying, guys, got this great idea for an action heist movie. <laughs> so it's literally like sort of, 22 years of like slow cooking and sort of like building up to the sort of confidence to kind of go for it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, that, and I think that type of patience is what you have to be as if you want to do film or if you want to be a director. It's because also maybe at certain points in your career, you weren't ready to make it yet. So maybe yeah. now you had to go through everything that you went through. I think that's true. To, in order to make this, in order to bring this movie to fruition. And so, you know, as we're wrapping this out, I'm curious to know, what do you, I love to ask directors, like, what do you think a director's job is? Like, what is your, what do you see what you do? I think you have to make the movies that you would pay to see and hope that the audience agrees with you. <laughs> I think that's it, really. I think that sort of, like, for all of the movies I've made are, like, films that if I hadn't have directed them, I would like to think that they would be one of my favorite movies. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you make the movies that you want to see. Yeah. But but your job, technically, when you're on set, what do you see? How do you define what you do? I think it was something... Actually, somebody said something about Baby Driver that uh, 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 was a really nice compliment, but it also made me think that that is one of the jobs. Somebody said this thing, and they said... They really love the movie, and they said, all of the actors are in the same movie. And I said, ah, that's interesting. And I think that is a thing. A lot of it is like tone control. Is like just maintaining the tone of the entire movie throughout. So tone control in terms of like the performances, 
the 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 camera shots complementing what you're trying to do the you know the sort of the music so there's it feels like it's all a piece of itself and not just a lot of random like stuff happening because I think you can sort of tell when people are having too much fun on the movie right <laughs> do you know what I mean where it becomes indulgent or it's like sort of repetitive and it's just like people have just gone a bit crazy and are sort of making themselves laugh and not really thinking about the audience you know so I, I think that's the thing is I just just sort of like I, I, I want to make movies that like sometimes as well a lot of the movies especially this one they're literally like sort of dreams that I've had and it's like I can't really rest until I get it out of my head do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, and this is one of those. Well, that's good, because if you didn't have directing, you'd be just screaming in a park somewhere. <laughs> just like... I could do that, too. Murdering pigeons and po- <laughs> positioning them. <laughs> like, that's what you would, you'd have to do. I'm very, uh, I'm very versatile. I could do that, too. <laughs> well, it's great. To thank you so much for coming and being here. Oh, of course. Think, I don't it's think a you've pleasure. been on before. I think I we, know. We did the bowling. We did the bowling thing, where you taught the world how to gentleman bowl. I know, which British is I think one of my bowling. favorite bits of press I've ever done was the bowling thing. You and Simon and Nick, and then we needed a fourth, so I called Steve Jones. It was amazing. I, honestly, my favorite bit of press I've ever done. It was, and also, I didn't know, I, I'd met Steve before, but I didn't know he was going to be there. And I saw him, <laughs> what was the name of that place? There was... Um, the one in Burbank? Pins. Oh, no, Pins. It was on Ventura, Pins. yeah. I said, Steve, what are you doing? He goes, I'm on your team. <laughs> Yeah, because you guys showed up, and I think you were a little hungover. Because it I was think the it premiere. Was, yeah, it's exactly the same as like of World's End premiere. Yeah, I mean, it's literally. I remember that. It's the same thing about my six forty-five pickup. I remember Simon and Nick especially were like, "Are we really bowling at like at ten in the morning?" But when after you guys the left, you were super happy. Oh yeah, it was the greatest. You got the ball. Like, like, oh, we got to bowl like, Steve Jones. We we thrashed the nerdist guys. It's my, it was literally my, the high point of my career. <laughs> Steve <laughs> threw out his back for a bit because he was like fucking. You know, he didn't know any other speed than, like, 100 miles an hour, so he... Uh, but it was great, yeah. You know what? It was such a great game. I have not bowled since. You know, if you I feel, feel like that, I can't really, like, beat it. If you feel that way about it, just let it be that thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're it's never It's on gonna, film. It's, it's, it's never going to get better than that. There's proof of it. <laughs> you don't need to read... If you do it, don't tell anyone unless, you know, unless it's better then, and then you can put it on social media. Yeah, because you don't want it to be the thing where there's sort of, like, after that video, people say, you know, Edgar's actually really good at bowling, and then you <laughs> suck. And then they think they just edited it together like that. And then you're going to start doing press and they're going to go, we've set up a lane for you to show us how to gentleman bowl a 300. Uh, I don't feel good. I don't want to do this. Uh, but thank you for being here, Edgar Wright. Of course, a pleasure. Anytime. Baby Driver, uh, what is the specific date that it comes June out? 28th. June 28th. US, Canada, UK, and Ireland. First time I've had a day and date release. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to be in a lot of places at once. Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. 6.45 tomorrow. <laughs> All right, enjoy your burrito. Just maybe don't <laughs> go to bed tonight. <laughs> that's, always a, that's always a plan, isn't it? It sounds like a good idea at the time. It does. You need to sleep on the plane. Yeah. Yeah. Air travel's great right now. Everyone's <laughs> patient. Everything's good. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.